In this out-of-class lecture podcast, I want to complete the story of the 1790s that we began in class. We were talking about the Hamiltonian reports that created the economy that we have today in the United States. Hamilton was the greatest secretary of the Treasury, and you see this with his three reports. Reports that were supported by President Washington, even though in the two-party system that we talked about, the Democratic-Republicans were up in arms against Hamilton's reports. And this exacerbated or worsened the almost civil war conditions between the two political parties. And this is what was so significant about the 1790s, that no one knew whether the American experiment could survive its first 10 years when the two political parties regarded one another as illegitimate. Something that sounds a little bit like what we're going through today, only it was worse in the 1790s, if that can be imagined. As long as the two political parties regarded each other as illegitimate, There was no guarantee that one political party would hand off power to another if the party outside of power won the White House. That would be determined, as we now know, by the election of 1800. But let's finish talking about the Hamiltonian reports. We talked about the report on public credit, and I want to underline what that is and why it's significant. Hamilton proposed paying the entire debt of both the United States government and the states, paying off the creditors of that debt, the holders of that debt, at 100%. The reason he wanted to do this was in order to, well, for first of all, to create a public debt. Hamilton believed that a public debt was a public blessing, not a curse. And he proceeded to show how it was. And by the time we're done talking about these three reports, you will understand why and how Hamilton was right that a public debt is a public blessing. But let's take a look again at the report on the public credit. Hamilton proposed that the government would pay 100% of the national debt, 100% of the state's debts that were still outstanding, and 100% of the foreign debt. Now, the Democratic-Republicans believed that the foreign debt had to be paid in full. The question was about debt owed to American citizens. The United States government could decide to only pay part of that or none of that, and it could get away with that because these are American citizens who benefit from the government. However, Hamilton said, no, we're not going to do that we're going to pay 100%. Now, the reason why he said that was because most of the debt, which had been in the form of war bonds, was being held by wealthy speculators. So by paying 100% of the debt, he was really binding the rich to the government in a kind of alliance of self-interest. And Hamilton was deliberate about that. He wanted the rich to be beholden to the federal government. He wanted the rich to believe that the government was stable and would pay back its debts, and this was one way to do that. The question is whether this was democratic or constitutional. The Democratic-Republicans thought it was neither democratic nor constitutional because these wealthy speculators had bought the debt from the poor farmers who had originally taken a chance on the revolution 
at 10% on the dollar. And Madison wanted to be fair with economic policy, whereas Hamilton wanted to be hard-headed. He wanted to do what would be best for the nation's economy, and he didn't care about sentimentalism. And I think Hamilton has the better argument on this score. One of the interesting things about the report on public credit was that 40% of the national income would have to go to funding the debt under this plan. The farmers would be taxed more, but Hamilton wanted to teach them a lesson anyway. He wanted to show who was boss, the national government or the states. He wanted to shrink the states in importance, and by taking over the debts of the states, it would look like he was giving the states a bonus, but on the other hand, he was transferring the loyalty of the rich who had held the state bonds formerly, transferring their loyalty from the states to the federal government, because now the federal government would pay the bonds, the state bonds, that the rich had felt that the states would pay back. Now they would no longer care what happened to the states and would look to the federal government for their money. But as we saw, the report would never have passed Congress had Hamilton and Jefferson not worked out a deal in which a small part of Virginia would be sectioned off as the District of Columbia and the national capital would be located there, and we would, of course, now call it Washington, D.C. So this is important because it showed that even when you have two political parties that hate each other, compromise is possible, and the genius of America has always been compromise something that failed us only one time in our history, namely the Civil War. Now, the report on the National Bank, that was the next step. This was really the question of how Hamilton was going to bind the rich to the government in the future, because the debt was a one-off. That binds the rich to the government, but how does the government go forward keeping the rich bound to the government? Hamilton proposed a national bank, capitalized at the value of $10 million. According to this idea, the bank, which would be mostly privately regulated, although the government would have a share in the bank as well, would be another way for the rich to be tied to the government by self-interest. The bank could issue stock, and it would be possible for anybody to buy the stock for 25% on the dollar. They would have to pay the rest later. But because the stock was quite expensive, this would probably be bought up by the rich. And that was fine with Hamilton. Because remember, Hamilton wanted rich people to be obligated to the government. If the rich people bought the stock in the bank, they would be tied to the government by self-interest. They could not let the government fail at any time in the future. They'd have to give the government more money if the government was in a precarious position, because they would not want to lose their original investment. And therefore, Hamilton wanted to help the class that had the potential or the means to help the government, and that was the wealthy. Now, of course, to the Democratic-Republicans, this was unfair. That was always what they said. The government should not be in the business of helping rich people, according to the Democratic-Republicans. And they were right. Uh, It was unfair, and it was also unconstitutional, according to James Madison and Jefferson, and I think they were correct 
on points. They were practically correct, uh, literally correct. There's nothing in the Constitution that says that the Congress can create a bank. But Hamilton interpreted the Constitution loosely, which is what we associate with the Federalist Party at this time, a loose interpretation of the Constitution, which they applied in every area. A loose construction of the Constitution means that the government can do anything it wants as long as the Constitution does not expressly forbid the government from doing that thing, whatever that thing happens to be. Whereas a strict construction of the Constitution, that is a strict interpretation of the Constitution, says that the government cannot do anything unless the Constitution clearly states that the government can do it. Madison and Jefferson were correct that there is nothing in the Constitution remotely indicating that Congress can create a bank. But Hamilton said, I don't care, it doesn't matter. The word needful or useful is in the Constitution, and furthermore, the Constitution says that Congress may do anything that is needful or useful to promote the general welfare. And he said that the bank was needful and useful to promote the general welfare. And Washington uh, agreed with Hamilton, and he signed the bill into law. And forevermore after this event, the rich have had a special relationship with the American government, and vice versa. The government has provided massive aid to wealthy corporate interests, and we still have this going on today. Whether this is good or bad is a judgment call. And those who think it's good tend to be Republicans, and those who think it's bad tend to be Democrats. So you see this, this rupture in our politics, beginning with the report on the bank. Now, the report on manufacturers was his third report in 1791, and Hamilton wanted the federal government to provide bounties to infant industries, as he called them. In other words, handouts, government welfare for small industries that were just getting going. There were no large industries in America. America was predominantly, overwhelmingly, a farm country. And Hamilton knew that in order for the nation to be great, it would have to develop industry, thriving industry, in competition with Great Britain, which was the greatest industrial power in the world. Only government help would make this possible. And I think Hamilton was right. But let's see what his proposals were and whether his individual proposals were good. He said that there should be a huge tariff on foreign goods. He believed that foreign goods imported into this country should be taxed so that that would make them more expensive relative to American products, and that way people would buy the American products instead of the foreign products. The farmers would pay the tax, essentially, because the industries would simply pass on the uh, tax to the consumer who were the farmers. So the farmers would end up paying for the growth of American industry. But Hamilton believed this was right because industry would make America great as a nation. Hamilton also wanted to encourage female and child labor in order to give a gift to American industry. Female and child labor would work cheap. In other words, 
cheap labor would help industry advance and rise. Of course, they would rise on the backs of women and children who would be worked to death according to this plan. So Hamilton's plan involved some element of cruelty, and the Democratic-Republicans pointed this out. Hamilton didn't get everything he wanted in the report on manufacturers. That, that is, Congress did give him protective tariffs, and protective tariffs would be a feature of American history from that point forward. But Congress did not approve the female and child labor parts of the report on manufacturers. But what we see in the Hamiltonian reports are two things. First, we see that Hamilton did create a system that would make the American economy the wonder of the world forever, including down to today. But we also see that he started a trend of government favoritism to the rich and to the well-born and to interests that only were looking out for themselves, but by looking out for themselves, ended up helping the government, as Hamilton foresaw. So Hamilton's plan was not one of equality. It was one of special privilege, but it did help make the country stronger. The next big thing that happened in the 1790s was the Whiskey Rebellion. The Whiskey Rebellion was a tax revolt in Ohio and Michigan and Wisconsin and Kentucky that really didn't consist of very many people. But Hamilton acted like it was a raging fire that had to be put out. And he convinced George Washington to put on his general's uniform one last time and march out with the U.S. Army to Ohio and Kentucky and all those other states to try to put down the Whiskey Rebellion. Hamilton wanted to teach the farmers and the frontiersmen a lesson, once again, that the national government was strong enough to put down mobs like Shays' Rebellion. Once again, the Whiskey Rebellion was more imaginary than real, but it gave Hamilton an excuse to rattle his saber. Jefferson ridiculed Hamilton because when Washington and his army got out to the West, they couldn't find any Whiskey Rebels. Everybody was glad to pay their tax. So it was another illustration of Hamilton's disrespect for the people. He did not like democracy. He did not trust the people. Now, to round this podcast out, we have to defer now to some of the topics that will, will be discussed in your textbook. You need to go to the American Yop, and you need to read about things like the Jay Treaty and the two political parties' position on Britain and France. The Jay Treaty was a commerce treaty, a treaty of trade with Great Britain. It was, of course, supported by the Federalist Party, which supported Great Britain in the wars of the French Revolution, and it was opposed by the Democratic Republicans, who supported France in the wars of the French Revolution. And so the Jay Treaty became a hotbed of debate between the two political parties, and when the John Adams administration took over from President Washington, when Washington stepped down after two terms in 1797, John Adams practically waged a quasi-war, which is kind of like a sort of war, with France in 1798. Adams 
because he was a Federalist, was pro-British and anti-French. And the United States found itself involved in a war on the high seas against France. And this rattled Adams, who decided that he would push through Congress a series of laws called the Alien and Sedition Act, which made it a crime to criticize the President of the United States and to engage in politics against the government in a time of war. Well, there wasn't even a declared war, but even if there had been a declared war, this was going way too far and violating the First Amendment of the Constitution. So the question was, would America's experiment fizzle out less than 10 years after it began? Certainly the rights that were enshrined in the Constitution were being treated like a worthless scrap of paper. And the Jeffersonian Republicans, the Democratic Republican Party, uh, waged a kind of guerrilla war, not with bullets, but with pamphlets and newspaper articles condemning Adams for the Alien and Sedition Acts. Jefferson himself wrote the Kentucky Resolutions, which declared that a state has the right to declare an act of Congress unconstitutional within its borders. And this is what is called nullification, and this is what would lead, this is one of the things that would be used by the South when it started the Civil War in 1861. But Jefferson was trying to uphold liberty, not slavery here. He was arguing that the Kentucky Resolutions were necessary in order to defeat the unconstitutional Alien and Sedition Acts. So what you see here is that the two political parties were on the cusp of a civil war in 1798. Adams, by the way, did not like Hamilton any more than Jefferson liked Hamilton. And so, they, so, and so Hamilton was pretty much exiled from the administration. But as the election of 1800 approached, everybody knew that this would settle the question, would America continue its experiment? What if Jefferson, the favorite of the Democratic-Republican Party, won the election? And indeed, he did win the election. What would happen then? Would the Federalists peacefully transfer power to the Republicans? No peaceful democratic country in history had had a peaceful transfer of power from one party to another before. America would be the first if it could manage this. And this would be decided by the election of 1800, as we will see in our next lecture.